for decades, Israel saw Moscow as an implacable ideological foe. The Soviet Union, as it was known, aligned itself with Israel's biggest enemies in the Middle East. It sought to stamp out any connection of its Soviet citizens to Israel, refusing millions the right to immigrate. However, the frost of the past has now melted. Where are Russian-Israeli ties going? This is more challenging as Russia has returned to the Middle East. What are Putin's motivations for Russia's involvement in the Middle East? And what are the implications for Israel? Friends, enemies, or frenemies? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we are exploring a series of policy dilemmas in Israel's history and present. Tough calls that require courageous leadership, significant sacrifice, creative thinking, and robust bilateral cooperation with regional and international partners. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey through Israel's history and present with you. The Russian President and the Israeli Prime Minister meet in Moscow. It's the third time Benjamin Netanyahu has visited the Russian capital in the last year. This time it's for the 25th anniversary of the resumption of diplomatic relations between the two countries. On one hand, Moscow was one of the earliest supporters of Israel's existence in 1948, viewing any British retreat from its mandate from the Middle East as good news for the Soviet Union. However, as it became clear, that Israel was firmly in the pro-Western camp, ties between Israel and Russia chilled. Relations were cut altogether after the Six-Day War of 1967 until the start of the Soviet collapse in the late 80s. Weapon sales to Israel's fiercest enemy, Syria, and its refusal to allow Soviet Jews to emigrate only deepened the enmity. However, as the Soviet superpower was falling, and diplomatic ties were re-established, the gates swung open. Israel gained over a million immigrants from the former Soviet Union, many of them highly educated. This helped launch Israel as the startup nation, a high-tech power. Russian is the third most commonly spoken language in Israel today, behind Hebrew and Arabic. We in Russia attach great importance to our contacts with Israel, says Vladimir Putin, not only because Israel is one of the key players in the Middle East, but also because of the historical relations that tie our countries. Russian President Vladimir Putin sees ties with Israel as good for Russia. In 2005, he became the first Russian leader to visit Israel and made a follow-up visit in 2012. He sought to draw close with Israeli leaders by drawing parallels between Russia's struggle with Sunni Islamist extremism and Israel's own fight against terrorism. Bilateral trade between the two countries ballooned to $3.5 billion. Furthermore, Putin decided to embrace Israelis of Russian descent. Russia is now paying pensions to former Soviet citizens living in Israel. In 2017, Russia recognized West Jerusalem as Israel's capital, although it maintains its embassy in Tel Aviv. Putin may view ties with Israel as a way to gain favor with Washington, 
even while he tries to limit American influence in the Middle East at the same time. Indeed, Israel has reason to be wary of Russia's intentions. Russia maintains a strategic and economic alliance with Iran, an anathema to Israel. Israel is frustrated by Russia's support of Iran, the most ideologically hostile country to Israel, and argues that Russian military sales will enable Hezbollah access to advanced weaponry as well. Since 2015, the Russian-Israeli relationship has had to deal with a new variable, Syria. Russia was spooked by Iranian concerns that their joint ally, Bashar al-Assad, may fall from power in Damascus. This is a serious source of worry for Russia, given their political investment in that authoritarian regime, and as Syria hosts Moscow's only naval base. Suddenly, Russia became Israel's northern neighbor, as it ruled the Syrian skies. Now, Israel had a thread and needle. It needed Russia to enable Israel to hit Iranian targets in Syria that were perched pretty close to Israel's border. Given the frosty ties between Washington and Moscow, Israel could not assume that the U.S. would do the diplomatic heavy lift itself. Neither Russia nor Israel wanted war, and Russia saw the value of ties with Israel and even saw the value in using Israeli strikes as a way to check its ally Iran as it is in Syria. So as long as Israel agreed to stay under the threshold of war and, as well, avoid all Russian casualties, Moscow gave the green light. The parties agreed to a policy called deconfliction, ensuring that Israeli and Russian pilots do not crash in Syrian airspace. Putin's policy in the Middle East is designed to maximize Russian influence. Therefore, he often plays both sides of the table, cultivating relations both with Israel and Iran. In other words, Russia wants both close ties with Israel and close ties with Israel's greatest enemy at the same time. To explore this contradictory relationship, we are delighted to welcome Anna Borshevskaya, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute focusing on Russian policy towards the Middle East. In addition, she's a contributor to Oxford Analytica and a fellow at the European Foundation for Democracy. Daniel Rakov is a retired lieutenant colonel from the Israel Defense Forces and currently an expert on Russian policy and great power competition in the Middle East at the Institute for National Security Studies, INSS, in Tel Aviv. Welcome to you both. So for both Anna and Daniel, ties between the Soviet Union and Israel were so unremittingly hostile. How much have Russian officials and the Russian public internalized a new era in ties between uh, Russia and Israel? Would it be fair to term the new relations as one of frenemies, part friend, part enemies? I'll start with you, Anna. Okay, thank you very much, David. So I think for for Putin's Russia, uh, Putin's Russia, uh, um, the Kremlin as a whole, particularly Vladimir Putin himself and the people that uh, he tried to emulate, um, have extracted a number of key lessons from the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the way the way Putin has approached Israel has been fundamentally in line with these uh, some of these key lessons and and uh these were very pragmatic very realpolitik 
uh, lessons that had nothing to do with any kind of moral considerations. The Soviet Union has managed to turn uh, a lot of people off, so to speak. It was uh, its its hostility to uh, uh, to many people was disadvantageous. So Putin's Russia, the way Putin's Russia approached Middle East, and this is an extension of Yevgeny Primakov's vision, uh, was to build ties with everyone, all major actors in the region, as opposed to the Soviet Union that had a clear ideological communist, uh, revolutionary communist lens and cultivated uh, not only uh, allies and friends and uh, client states, but also adversaries, uh, also had adversaries that had fought. So Putin is approaching Israel from this very pragmatic perspective perspective that a cultivating a relationship is more useful than antagonizing um, Israel along with uh, other actors to create a perception, and I want to stress it's a perception, of a, uh, a state that cooperates with everyone. And, um, you know, sk- skipping a little bit ahead, I would, I would argue that this approach in many ways has been more successful than that of the Soviet Union. Daniel, what do you think? Uh, I think that uh, the comparison is uh, unfair because we it's 30 years since the disintegration of Soviet Union so it's a, quite a lot of time so we are all all the time we are comparing to something uh, which is totally different and Russia modern Russia is not a Soviet Union at all i i think that we look we should look at Russia on its own it's not only uh, to compare unlike anna i will say that in my opinion it's not only a perception of Putin being more friendly to Israel, but the reality, many people who live in Russia, who uh, work with the Russians, uh, Jewish organizations, they say it's an unprecedented leader. They say this is the best the Jews and the Israelis might hope for from Russian leaders. It will makes for good podcasts when we get contrasting perspectives. But Anna, you say on one hand, like the he is the sense of, you know, realpolitik, uh, perhaps Putin, he's driven by his own agenda. But you seem to think that Israel gets duped by Putin. Could you explain? Putin's Russia is absolutely very different from the Soviet Union. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. And it, it and, and certainly Putin is no Stalin. I, I also agree with that as well. Uh, I've also observed myself exactly the dynamic that Daniel described uh, when I when I traveled to Israel. Putin defines Russian interests as he sees them. And those interests have nothing to do with being kind of a genuine, uh, genuine ally and friend in the Western sense that, that we understand it. I've heard uh, occasionally over the years that Putin uh, has a soft spot for Israel and Jews. You know, as a former KGB officer, Putin doesn't have any soft spots. So this is um, this this is a purely pragmatic decision that uh, that is not uh, driven by uh, genuine warmth. Uh, it's 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 driven by pragmatism. That may not necessarily get Israel as positive results from Russian foreign policy as it might sometimes hope. Uh, for example, the idea that Russia could drive uh, Iran out of Syria or curb uh, in any meaningful way Iranian activity in the region. Well, I think that he is quite a sentimental guy. Uh, he has, uh, he represents Russian interests and he represents his beliefs and his prioritization. But I think that he does have a warm uh, place for Israel. And uh, I think it's not a, a coincidence that he puts relatively a lot of time dealing with, uh, with Israel out of all of the 200 countries. I think it's both 
the fact that the Israeli leadership, especially Prime Minister Netanyahu, seeks his uh, disconnection with, uh, with Putin, but also his genuine affinity. I think that, on the other hand, uh, we should not exaggerate uh, on the level of this affinity. So uh, Putin, despite his aff uh, affinities, uh, he's first and foremost a Russian president. And uh, if there is a contradiction between the Russian national interest and as he perceives it, he will be harsh. And we've seen this uh, in 2018 during this uh, crisis with the Russian plane, a military plane being shot by the Syrians, uh, the Russians accused Israel being the precursor of this uh, incident. You know, the fact that the that the two leaders of Israel, of Russia and Israel, that, you know, it's been for years, Putin and Netanyahu, you know, it seems that they were brought together in no small measure because of circumstance, that the U.S.-Russian relationship was poor, and Israel felt it didn't have a choice given that from 2015 and onwards, now Russia is Israel's neighbor, at least in the skies, given its dominance uh, in Syria, as it tr as it you know tried to save uh, Bashar al-Assad. So you needed to deconflict planes, and that meant by force of circumstance, you didn't have the luxury if you were Israel to ignore the Russians uh, in this regard. And so, to what extent? is um, the idea was what we call, um, you know, if you, if you have lemons, make lemonade. But Israel had no choice but to deal with him, and it's a very transactional uh, kind of relationship. But if the U.S. and Russia had better ties, then Israel would be happy for the U.S. to handle, you know, relations. So, Daniel, what do you think? How much of this is by dint of necessity rather than uh, desire for Israel? I was, uh, in 2015, I was in the government and I, I remember that there was a dilemma how the issue should be dealt. And the solution by Prime Minister Netanyahu to, to go to Moscow uh, and to speak about this issue directly and to agree about the confliction is, uh, was not necessarily a trivial one. I think it was, uh, uh, when we look in re retrospectively, I think that... Uh, uh, it was uh, pushed by the necessity, it was important, and uh, not only Israel decided the same way, I think that there is uh, also the Americans have the confliction lines, the Turks, the Jordanians, so uh, this solution was was chosen by all the uh, parties uh, adjacent to Syria. Anna, let me ask you, because you know, you're following it from Washington, do you accept this, that there's a, a floor and a ceiling, so to speak, uh, how far U.S.-Israeli-Russian relations can go. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know, I still remember Bibi's comment. Uh, I believe it may have been in 2015 when he said, um, nothing will replace the United States. Uh, I'm simply looking for other uh, great power partners. He mentioned Russia among among one of them. Um, and, and I do think a lot of what happened over uh, recent years with regard to Israel and Russia was, was driven indeed by necessity. I mean, Russia is now basically Israel's neighbor. Russia is now in Syria and it uh, has control of the Syrian skies. Israel, like it or not, has to deal 
deal with Russia. So uh, I, I think, you know, from the from the Russian uh, foreign policy perspective, what's interesting about this situation is I don't think Putin was ever looking to replace the United States. He understood that that's not something he can do. The the approach he pursued in, instead was to simply uh, cultivate Israel, knowing its limitations and knowing your limitations in the, in this case has proven uh, to be uh, quite uh, quite useful for him. So now let's talk about the two of you who follow Russia closely, the whole relationship between Russia and Iran. And in Israel, you hear, look, they, they both have strategic interests, but they're not identical. Of course, Russia sells, you know, key weaponry to Iran, which Israel sees as its biggest enemy. What do you think is realistic and what is fantasy when it comes to Russia's ability to impact Iran's decision-making? Or does Russia just rely on Israel to say, okay, you want to hit the Iranians in, in Syria? We're not going to stop you. And that's a way, in a certain way, uh, to constrain Tehran's position in Syria. So I think the important thing uh, from a big picture perspective here is that uh, for as much as Putin uh, cultivated all major actors in the Middle East, and that's also not perception, that that's reality, he really did build uh, good relations with uh, conflicting uh, ac major actors in the region. He has always tilted closer to anti-American forces. You can call it perhaps anti-Sunni forces, the Iran-Assad uh, axis in the region. That's a really important big picture perspective when we're discussing Russia-Israeli uh, Russia relations. That it, you know, on the one hand, you can say, sure, Putin has connections with everybody, he's partnered with everybody, but he's still much more cooperative with anti-American forces. So to that end, with regard to uh, Russia in Iran, what's useful for Putin is, is to be the stronger actor. So, and that's been, and that's historic for Russia. That's not just Putin. The Kremlin has always looked to be stronger than other uh, actors in, on a particular scene. So to the extent that Israeli uh, strikes weaken uh, Iranian proxies, that doesn't really hurt his interests. But what is also important is that Iran does the heavy lifting in Syria. This is also, with regard to Russia and Iran, this is also um, an anti-American uh, partnership. They both share bigger uh, geopolitical goals, even as they disagree tactically. And uh, so Russia is also simply not looking for a major uh, confrontation with Iran. Uh, it's also unclear what resources it really has, even if it wants to push uh, on Iran more strongly. It's unclear if it would be able to. So it's both unwilling and unable. So the, you, you don't find examples of Russia being able to modify Iranian decision-making when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to Syria. You don't see it. I don't see anything major. I see occasional uh, small tactical, uh, tactical moves, but I don't see any major uh, decisions like that. I remember a specific in, uh, incident, uh, I believe about two years ago, where Russia was asked to push back on uh, Hezbollah, Hezbollah forces. Daniel, over to you. How do you see it? Do you see Russia as being able to constrain Iran? I think that Russia, uh, Russian activity changes the Iranian calculus. So from the one hand, they have a lot of uh, common ground and uh, Anna has mentioned uh, some of them, some of it. Uh, first and foremost, their common anti-Americanism, which Iran being one of the main anti-American actors, both in the Middle East and maybe even worldwide. And, uh, and they have many common areas of interest in the Caspian Sea, the Afghanistan, the Caucasus, and all of the Middle East and Syria included. So in this uh, big relationship, 
which is quite complicated, Russia can uh, compartmentalize Syria. So they can disagree with Iran on Syria, uh, while Russia being totally helpful for Iran, on, for instance, in the nuclear file. So I think that in their view, uh, the Iranians should live sometime in the future, but they, the Iranians are uh, a difficult partner for them in Syria as in other places in the world. And, uh, and therefore, there is a lot of friction. And uh, I think that it's not that the Russians are going to drive the Iranians away. They might work for it more eagerly if they would have been uh, proposed some big price for it. But without a price, with only sanctions as a, as a big price, for, then the Russians are cooperated the Iranians. And Anna mentioned that uh, the Russians need the Iranians as the boots on the ground in, in, in Syria. But uh, without a big price, they are not going to drive the Iranians away in any near time in the future. When you say big prize, uh, and you say it's not just the price, it's not just more sanctions on the Russians, are you alluding to some grand trade-off where the U.S. is somehow takes a different approach to Ukraine, Crimea, in return from exit from Syria? Is that like some grand quid pro quo that Russia seeks? I think that the amount of the bounty is uh, submitted to a, to a change uh, as the time goes by. I think that nowadays the evaluation of this price is small. I think that there is an understanding that uh, for many years to come, Russian and American relationship will not be the same as in 2013. In 2013, it was not very good, but it will not re re return even to that level because of uh, the a lot of animosity and hostility and uh, and suspicion and no uh, inability to build the confidence. So I think that they would like to smaller prices to, to at least at least to have some to uh, to bring the communications channels uh, back to to have some uh, cooperation with the United States on the Syrian political track, the, and not this grand bargain in, involving Ukraine. So the, the price is smaller uh, and, uh, and more, more concrete. This idea of the, the attitude of the Russian immigrants who come to Israel, to what extent do they have favorable views of Russia? Because, you know, I think, Certainly, was as we see it in the United States, there was a lot of persecution of the Jews. They didn't let them leave. Yes, they gave them an education, but it was predicated on them not leaving. And uh, the, the Soviet Jewry struggle went on for decades. Um, and uh, Russia was, you know, tried to clamp down on on any presentation of Israel in the old days, uh, in the Soviet days. Uh, Judaism was also constrained, but Putin seems to be counting on these immigrants as being, you know, pro-Russian in a certain way. So who's right? Most of it is not very favorable of Putin, I will say, but quite fair, but it, uh, there are a lot of people-to-people -people relations uh, with Russia because uh, Russia, the many, much more Israelis travel to Russia, see the Russia as it is, and uh, understand, speak the language, speak the uh, understand the culture. Russia is more demystified in the Israelis' eyes 
and uh, and they see how can they deal with it without naivety and uh, to understand how can they promote their national interest with Russia. One of the problems is as as, uh, as this crisis between Russia and the West gets deeper and there are less contacts between the Western uh, experts or people from the world, from the United States, from Europe, they visit less Russia. So the demonizing images get stronger and stronger. And sometimes part of them are completely wrong. And sometimes some common ground which can be achieved is uh, it's, it's not discernible without uh, having uh, contacts. When it comes to Iran, if I may, just one last point. Um, what Putin's Russia fears the most is a pro-Western Iran. Uh, it fears a pro-Western Iran um, even more than a nuclear Iran. Uh, and again, when we look at big, and, and Daniel was was absolutely correct when he described the Russia-Iran uh, relationship earlier, uh, it, it is very complex and they certainly have a complicated and adversarial history uh, going back centuries. But this current Putin's Russia fears a pro-Western Iran the most. Very interesting. Look, I want to thank you both for a very wide-ranging discussion. There were a lot of areas where you guys agreed, and then there was also some, you know, interesting contrast. And I want to thank you both for providing perspectives, uh, both from Israel and from the United States. And um, thank you very much for joining us today. I think we heard really two interesting perspectives. There was times where they converged and there were times when it diverged. Both of them saw that the approach of Putin is nowhere as nefarious as it was during Stalin's time. Of course, that's a very low bar. Both of them thought that Russia is pursuing ties with Israel for its own sense of self-interest and to be a relevant player in the Middle East. There was agreement there. Daniel, you know, saw where how Putin has improved the relationship, and Anna really focused on the fact that Putin will be very calculating and will not allow sentiment at all to have any impact on his thinking. Both of them saw the Russian-Iranian relationship as a constant, that Russia was not going to twist Iran's arm because of Moscow's ties with Jerusalem. But Daniel felt more that if you want to get things from Putin, you can't just press uh, with, with Russian sanctions. You're going to have to also do some enticements. And even if Russia is not where it was and realizing that it's way out, it's not in the cards for the U.S. to make any concessions on the territorial integrity of Ukraine, Russia's kind of lowered its price and um, would like, though, to see some acknowledgement of Russia's role in any diplomacy regarding Syria's future. I thought what was really fascinating was how each of them believed that it is the past that is really never past. And I think for both Daniel and Anna, they both saw that Russia feels it doesn't get enough credit for its sacrifices in fighting the Nazis, even if they started out on the Nazi side. And that this is a, a motif that Putin has used in, in his dealings with Netanyahu as the idea of the fight in, against extremism writ large. So it teaches me that the past is never fully past. These countries are navigating themselves to a new place, but it's never going to be a place that is like the U.S.-Israel relationship. 
it's always going to be much more transactional, where Russia will weigh an array of interests in the Middle East based on its own self-interest. And therefore, it's this transactional relationship which has allowed Russia and Israel to find common cause uh, in Syria in constraining Iranian power that means that there might be a higher floor to the relationship, but there's a definite ceiling as well. And it remains essentially a transactional relationship. So it's within that zone, these countries will deal with each other now and probably in the coming years. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of season three. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible, our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all. Thank you.